I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 3, which will form the text for this morning's sermon. We just sang about God choosing David, His servant, and crowning him and using David to shepherd that stubborn flock of Israel. And really, what's happening in the book of Acts is exactly that in fulfillment. The Lord Jesus is the great son of David, and He has been crowned king over Israel, and He's busy restoring Israel. And we see that unfolding in Acts chapter 3, the Lord Jesus, of course, being king in heaven above at the throne the right hand of His Father's throne in heaven. So, Acts chapter 3, the whole chapter will serve as our text, continuing our series of sermons on these chapters. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob The God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. 
you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So far, our text. <clears throat> In response to the preaching, we'll sing about the, the glorious and joyful work of King Jesus where prisoners leap to lose their chains. Hymn 45. <clears throat> Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we move into Acts 3, we find ourselves in the wake, you could say, of Pentecost. In chapter 2, Luke described for us the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on a, on, by our ascended King Jesus. And now in chapter 3, he describes for us the ongoing effects of the Spirit's presence. What is King Jesus going to do now with the power of the Holy Spirit that he has poured out? What are the next steps that our Savior has in mind. And what we discover in the succeeding chapters in Acts is a definite plan. There's a plan unfolding, a plan to proclaim the gospel of salvation in a certain sequence, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. You can find this pattern, in fact, all the way through the book of Acts. Later, when Paul is commissioned to go out to the Gentiles, Paul and his associates, whenever they go into the surrounding Gentile nations and they come to a new city, the first thing Paul does is he goes into the local synagogue and he preaches Jesus to the Jews. Usually we find a few of the Jews respond in faith, but most of the time there's unbelief and rejection, and it's only at that point that Paul leaves the synagogue to go out directly to the Gentiles and starts preaching to them. So, Jew first, then Gentile. And that's not just an interesting historical fact, a curiosity of some 2,000 years ago. For this very pattern reveals certain things. One of the things it reveals is the heart of our Savior. For who are the Jews? The Jews are Israelites. They are God's holy covenant people from of old. They are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the people that He loves. They are also His stubborn people rebellious people. 
who have turned their back on the very Messiah that God sent to them, Jesus Christ. And how now does King Jesus, seated at the throne of power in heaven, how does He choose to deal with these stubborn, these rebellious, hard-to-get-through-to, stiff-necked people who have rejected Him even to the point of crucifying Him? How does Jesus deal with them? Well, He returns their evil with good. And instead of returning their hatred with hatred, He returns it with love. That's the heart of our Savior. And I hope to bring it out more as I bring you this word of the Lord. King Jesus offers forgiveness again to stubborn Israel. King Jesus again offers forgiveness to stubborn Israel. We'll see Israel's shame and then Christ's grace. Our text begins in chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That would be three in the afternoon, give or take. Every day in the temple, the priests, they would offer a morning sacrifice for the whole nation and an afternoon sacrifice, or they called it an evening sacrifice, basically when the sun started its downward trajectory. So that was somewhere around three in the afternoon, typically. And when the sacrifices were being offered in the temple, people that lived in Jerusalem, they would come to pray at those times. At least some would always be coming to pray at those times. And we learn in our text that the Christians would also come, led by the apostles. Now, to us Gentiles, right, Gentiles are just non-Jewish people, To us Gentiles, 2,000 years later, it seems odd for Christians to go up to the Jewish temple to pray. But in those early years, these Jewish Christians, they continued to have a high regard for the temple, which they knew was God's house, or at least had been God's house. They knew that Jesus… that… Jesus had already come as the Lamb of God. They knew that Christ had offered His sacrifice for sins on the cross. They knew that the curtain temple had been torn by God's own hand from top to bottom the moment Jesus died. And still, they made use of the opportunity to come to that temple to pray and also to preach the gospel there, just as Jesus Himself did during His earthly ministry. You recall He went many times to the temple. And when you come to think about it, what better place could there be to proclaim Jesus as fulfillment of God's promises, Jesus as Messiah, than right there in the temple, the temple which had been built at the command of God to point forward to the Messiah, right? The Messiah is God in the flesh. The Messiah is the temple walking around in Israel. Well, the temple then points to Jesus. So, what we have in verse 1 is Luke giving us a little peek, you could say, into the regular routines of these early believers. 
Just as he summarized it at the end of chapter 2, we read that last time, they attended the temple daily, verse 46, chapter 2. What were they doing? They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So we have this picture of the early Christian church. They would have Christian uh, fellowship in the privacy of their, their own homes. And then at certain times, they would go to the temple where they would publicly worship Christ, where they would also have times of teaching and preaching in the temple precincts. John and Peter are mentioned here as leaders of the apostles, and Peter in particular will figure in uh, as, uh, quite prominently in the early chapters of Acts all the way to chapter 12. Luke will tell us about Peter and how he led the charge in bringing the gospel to the Jews. He was the key figure for that. Later, after chapter 12, Luke will switch gears and tell us all about Paul and his mission to the Gentiles. But right now, the concentration is on the Jews in Jerusalem. First the Jews, then the Gentiles. And there's one Jew, there's one Israelite in particular who comes to front and center in our text, and that's this man who is described in verse 2 as being lame from birth. It's also said there, verse 2, he was laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Luke mentions the location, this gate called the Beautiful Gate. Now, the temple complex, it wasn't just a simple building. There was actually a a number of courtyards, and there were a number of walls to access those courtyards, and you access the courtyards through various gates. So there were at least ten, if not more, gates all surrounding the temple proper in these various courtyards. And scholars don't know for certain which particular gate this one was, the one called Beautiful. They narrow it down to one or two locations closer to the interior, closer as you would approach the place of sacrifice, you would have to come through this this particular gate, the Beautiful Gate, one way or the other. People would, would be coming through there, there'd be regular traffic. That's why the friends of this lame man set him down at that gate because there was a lot of traffic. It was a great place to beg for alms, right? You could, you could get a good income that way. You wouldn't go to a gate where there was only a few people. You'd go where there was regular traffic. So we don't know where the beautiful gate is precisely, but I don't think, brothers and sisters, the precise location is the point as the gate's name is significant. It's mentioned twice in our passage. It's the beautiful gate. So the gate has this this name. It's a significant name. But did you notice that the man in our text has no name? The gate's got a name, but not the man, the lame man. The temple gate had this name beautiful because it was full of splendor. There were, as I mentioned, a number of other gates, and each of them were impressive in themselves. They all were overlaid with silver and gold, but this gate was larger by far. It took 20 men to open and close every day. And it was made of Corinthian bronze, which was highly sought after in that time. 
So this beautiful gate, it was massive, it was unique, it was impressive to the eye, it was a sight to behold. So all of the temple gates, and then especially this one called Beautiful, it would have been a, a testimony to the wealth and the riches of the Israelites. It was evidence of how much importance the covenant people placed in honoring and beautifying the house of God. Everybody was impressed with this gate. Everybody knew the name of this magnificent gate, but nobody knew the name of the beggar in front of the gate. Do you see how backwards that is, brothers and sisters? The gate and its name shows something. It shows that Israel had all kinds of desire and energy and money to sink into God's temple gates, but there was no desire, there was no energy, and there was no money to care for God's poor Israelite child right at the temple doorstep. He had to go there every day to beg. He couldn't walk. This was from birth, we're told. He had no ability to walk. And therefore, he had next to no ability to provide an income for himself. In that time and culture, there was very little work you could do that would fetch you an income. All that his friends could do was to bring him to the temple gate called Beautiful every day so that he could beg for money to have enough to eat. What's wrong with that picture, beloved? What's wrong is that God had commanded, this should never be among my people. Long before, through Moses in Deuteronomy 15, God said, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in the land. And all in that passage, Deuteronomy 15, God is articulating the principle of care for the poor among the people. The poor man, says the Lord, he's your brother. You should care for him. You should help him. This was the principle God drummed home to his people. Help the able-bodied man who has fallen onto hard times. Help him get back on his feet. Give him employment. Help those who are sick get better. Help those who are injured to become healed. Give them assistance in the short term. Help them for the long term. And if somebody is totally helpless, if somebody cannot help themselves, then you, my people, provide for them. For I am the Lord your God who provides for you. I have blessed you with all the good things you've got. Your health comes from my hand. Your money comes from my hand. Your opportunities come from my hand. So go and do likewise and be generous and care for those who are in need among you. God even said, there shall be no poor among you in the sense of nobody should go begging. You care for them, my people, as I have cared for you. So the very surprising thing and telling thing in our text, the first surprising thing, is that there is a lame beggar at all in front of any of the gates of the temple let alone the gate called beautiful. This lame man is evidence of the spiritual state of Israel, how far they had declined in their love for God and their love for their neighbor. Love for neighbor shows how much you love God. 
There's a contrast here, too, with the Christian community. At the end of Acts 2, we read how they were operating, the, the Spirit-filled body. After Pen, the, the Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, we read at the end of Acts 2 that all the believers were together, and they were selling their possessions. They were doing that willingly, and they were distributing the, proce the proceeds of their sale to all, to any, as they had need. So among the followers of Jesus, those 3,000 at this point, there were none who went without daily provision, and there was nobody who had to go begging for alms. They were cared for. But among old Israel, the lame went begging. And still there is more to this nameless lame man he seems to be totally unaware of Jesus Christ. He seems to be totally unaware of his apostles, Peter and John. Actually, the better word would be he's ignorant. He's willfully ignorant of them and what they're all about. For it cannot be that this lame man has not seen these apostles before that he has not seen the Lord Jesus himself before. We know from Acts 4 that this man was over 40 years old. And our text tells us in verse 2 that he was laid every day at the gate called Beautiful. Well, how many times didn't Jesus personally enter into the temple through that gate? Because that gate was the one, one of the ones that got you into the interior. It was a main gate, Jesus would have gone through there multiple times to pray and to preach and to teach. And what about the, the two times that Jesus had cleansed out the temple from animals and money changers? What Jew could have sat there day after day and have failed to hear Jesus in person or at the very least hear about Him and His message of salvation? And how many times haven't those disciples now come through this gate to pray and preach since the day of Pentecost? I mean, the day of Pentecost saw 3,000 Christians, 3,000 believers or people become Christians, and we're told they went back and forth to the temple where they gathered in Solomon's portico just outside the beautiful gate to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. How could it be that this blind beggar missed what was going on with these 3,000 believers? He was there. He saw them every single day. And yet, what response does he offer? Nothing. Nada. Crickets. Even in verse 5, when Peter and John, they stop to give him their, their attention, then this man, he, he gives his attention to them, but he's only thinking that he's going to get some money. All the hoopla about Jesus of Nazareth, it has gone in one ear and out the other. The lame man is not interested. Do you see, brothers and sisters, how this man in his condition, how he represents the entire nation of Israel in its stubbornness and dismissive unbelief. 
this man's physical and spiritual condition, it's a symbol of the whole nation. The whole covenant people are stuck in their lameness. Even more to the point, they've actually paralyzed themselves through their ignorance, through their ignoring of Jesus of Nazareth by writing Him off as just another wacky figure who was going nowhere. And even the residents of Jerusalem in particular contributing to His execution by screaming for His death. They've made themselves spiritually poor. They've made themselves spiritually lame beggars who have no sense of the true treasures that Jesus of Nazareth can provide for them. They ignore Him and His apostles. Do you know what that feels like? To have once heard the message of Jesus of the forgiveness of sins and life that come in the blood of Jesus, to have heard that and to dismiss it from your mind, to think it's something you couldn't be bothered with, that He's just a Savior in name, but He, he can't really give me anything I need. Or maybe you know somebody like that. A person like these Israelites Peter addresses who, who grew up learning about the Lord and His ways and learning even about the Savior Jesus Christ, but who walked away as they grew older, who showed no interest in Christ, who chose instead to ignore what they had heard about Jesus, thinking that they are doing just fine on their own when in fact you understand, you see with clarity that they are exactly like this lame beggar looking for alms to survive when in fact they have passed over the treasure being held out to them in the Savior Jesus Christ. When you see people like that, when you know people like that, that breaks your heart, doesn't it? That's where the Israelites were at as a whole group, as a whole nation. The shame of the Israelites was mountainous. And just as Peter did on Pentecost Day in his sermon here now, he does the same. He lays bare their guilt and shame. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus, whom you you Jews in Jerusalem in particular, whom you Jews delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one, he continues. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, Peter says. Peter doesn't pull any punches, does he? You delivered Jesus to Pilate. You pressured Pilate to go against his better judgment, and you denied Jesus. Actually, Peter identifies Jesus more fully with certain terms. He says, you denied the Holy One, and you denied the Righteous One. Those are titles used often for the Lord, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. 
In other words, Peter is, is accusing them, you have denied knowing your very own covenant God. You asked for a murderer to be given to you while you became murderers yourselves. And then Peter goes for the jugular. An accusation that would have either undone them or infuriated those Israelites. Verse 15, and you killed, notice the expression, you killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. You killed the one who gives life. You killed the one who created life. You killed the one who's in charge of life. Peter might as well have said, you killed God. Because God is the author of life. Who is the source and ruler of life if it is not God? Peter is not shy about identifying Jesus as much more than the son of Mary and Joseph much more than that apprentice carpenter from Nazareth in Galilee, much more even than a miracle-working rabbi. He is God in the flesh. He is Yahweh from of old. He's your covenant God, O Israel, and you murdered Him. What more rebellion could they add? What more sin could they add to their shame than by killing the very Messiah sent to save them. And yet, as, as massive as Israel's guilt is, as gargantuan and colossal as their shame and depravity and spiritual paralysis are, so much greater so much grander and so much more powerful is the grace of Jesus Christ for them. For if our heart breaks for covenant people gone astray, the heart of King Jesus breaks even more. Compassion spills out even more. That's what's going on in our text. He is moved with compassion to reach out again to these stubborn people of His. We see it in Peter's address to the Israelites, verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. He starts with that address. Brothers. He's just called the murderers the ones directly responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, now he calls them brothers. That's quite something, isn't it? And how does he do that? How can he make that identity, that connection? Because Peter is one of them. He's a fellow Israelite. He's a member of the church. He's a Jew. He's part of the covenant people. They are his biological kinsmen, his spiritual kinsmen. And yet he says more. Or Peter is more than that. He says of, of the Israelites twice that they denied Jesus. They denied the Holy and the Righteous One. Well, isn't that exactly what Peter did? Same verb is used as in the Gospels. Peter denied 
Jesus, didn't he? So here you've got the one who denied Jesus out of fear for his life, calling those who denied Jesus because they didn't understand him, calling them brothers and urging them to repent. They are his brothers. But they're brothers who did not really know who Jesus was, even though they could have known. That's the, the nuance here, and that's what acting in ignorance means. Peter references that in verse 17. I know that you acted in ignorance. This ignorance does not let them off the hook. What they did was evil, and they remain guilty of that evil. But the type of ignorance is is particular in this case. They, they certainly knew that they were killing an innocent man. They certainly knew that Jesus was a teacher from God, a worker of miracles, but instead of letting what they knew lead them to, to come to know Jesus more deeply and to put their trust in Him as Messiah, they actually turned away from Him thinking that Jesus was an imposter. They knew that Jesus claimed to be Christ. They said, you're not Christ. They denied Him. In that sense, they were ignorant. They did not truly know that Jesus was in fact who He said He was. He is the author of life. He is this Holy One, the Righteous One. Jesus Himself pointed to their ignorance when He prayed for those who were putting Him to death. Remember, remember that in Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And now King Jesus sends Peter to the very same Jews in Jerusalem on and after Pentecost Day to, to give an answer to that prayer by confronting them with their sin, by urging them to repent and holding out the sincere offer of forgiveness. The prayer of Jesus is being answered. They are being forgiven as they come to repentance. As hard as Peter is in laying bare their guilt, so gentle is he now with words which soften the blow, words which encourage these Israelites who have been, well, you could say they've been hammered with the accusations, the true accusations of the gospel, but words now which encourage and give hope to them Peter had denied Jesus but had received grace and was forgiven. So he approaches these deniers with the same grace. Not only did they act in ignorance, but they did all that they did as part of God's plan, he tells them. He starts to work that out in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, He glorified His servant Jesus Jesus is God's servant. And that's a reference to Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah's got a number of prophecies about the special figure, the servant of God, who would come. And particularly in 52 and 53 of his book, we learn that the servant first had to suffer for the transgressions of his people. And then he had to be raised up to life for the salvation of his people. 
So Peter is saying, all that happened to Jesus through your hands, O Israel, that was long ago forecasted. It was planned by God. And what was the purpose of God in executing this plan? It was to bring you redemption. He underlines that in verse 18. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. <coughs> what Peter is trying to get across to the Israelites is very much what like Joseph back in Genesis was tried to get across to his brothers who also were cut to the heart with their sin. You remember that those brothers, they had sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt and they thought they had sold their brother into death never to return. But when he did return, the brothers became frightened because they thought they were going to be in trouble with Joseph. But Joseph says to them, My brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And now Peter is saying to his fellow brothers, You meant it for evil, but God used your evil for your good and for the good of many others. He later quotes that verse about the blessing of, of Abraham, the blessing of, of God that would expand to all the families on earth. You meant it for evil, but God is using your evil for His good plan to bring salvation. So don't just stand there, embrace Jesus, repent of your sins and put your trust in Him. Then you will be forgiven. Then you will enjoy the salvation that He promises. He says it in verse 19. Repent, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that you can have your sins blotted out? We sang about it in Psalm 51. Peter draws on that expression from Psalm 51. All those sins of David, you know those sins, those, those wicked sins. You know your sins. I know my sins, my wicked sins. Jesus is saying, I will blot them out. It's a picture of what they would do to get ink off a page. In those days, the kind of ink that they had did not actually sink into the paper. It stayed on the surface of the paper. So if you really wanted to get the ink off the paper, you took a wet sponge and you, you literally wiped it away and you would have a clean piece of paper. You'd have a clean slate. Through Peter, Jesus saying to the Israelites and to us, I will wipe your slate clean. Just confess your sins. Come to me. Believe in me. And you will experience times of refreshing. That's a, a very interesting expression, verse 20, times of refreshing. What did Peter mean by that? Well, I think we only have to look back to the end of chapter 2, to the work of the Spirit of Pentecost among those believers, among those who had already repented, the first group of repentees, the restored Israel. What are they doing? 2 verse 46 day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. That sounds pretty refreshing, doesn't it? 
they have undergone a transformation from hearts that ignore Jesus and wrote Jesus off dismissively as some crackpot, from hearts that were burdened with guilt before their God, from people who had been spiritually paralyzed by their own foolishness, now 3,000 of them are fellowshipping together. They're sharing with, uh, with one another spiritually and physically, and they're doing it with glad hearts, with joyful hearts, with generous spirits, and all the while they're praising God. They suddenly had peace with their God, and they were filled with the Spirit of Christ freshly poured out on them and their hearts they were bursting bursting with love for their lord and love for one another can't wait to fellowship with my brothers and sisters that's about as refreshing as you can have it on this earth don't you think times of refreshing for all who repent What King Jesus does for stubborn sinners like you and me, for covenant breakers, for people who have passed him over and said, no thanks. What he does in his grace is make us leap up and dance like the lame beggar. If he is a picture of Israel in, in Israel's stubbornness and sinful spiritual disability which they imposed upon themselves, then the healing of this man is a picture of Christ's grace, a picture of people who have been transformed by grace, by miraculous power. Brothers and sisters, you and I are that lame man. If we are Christians right now, we are that lame man. Peter is clear that the healing didn't come from himself. Or from John, it came from Jesus. He repeats it even in, twice in verse 16. His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong. The faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of all. Even the very act of faith in Jesus is a gift from the Lord. You notice that nowhere in this story do we read that the lame man first placed his faith in Jesus and then Peter healed him. No. This is parallel to the, the demon-possessed earlier in the Gospels, people who are totally incapable of responding in faith until they had been healed. Here too, King Jesus, through His servant Peter, He heals the man, body and soul, in one shot. He does it with that divine command. He does it with that extended hand to the lame man so that he stood up with strong ankles and, and sturdy feet and a new heart filled with respect and love and honor for Jesus of Nazareth as the true Messiah. His former ignorance is replaced with knowledge. His dismissiveness is now submissiveness. And there is a repentant soul and a trusting heart inside that totally healthy body. How outstandingly joyful and refreshingly beautiful for this man. That's what awaits us all as we daily repent. Not everybody repents. 
Not everybody hearing Peter's sermon reacted like this beggar did. We'll read in chapter 4 that about 5,000 did, but not everybody did. Peter has to come with a sharp warning, verse 22 of our text. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from my people. Christ in His grace comes to His stubborn people, the, the stubborn Israelite covenant people, and He'll do it again later in this book of Acts. We'll see Him do it again and again and again. He's kind. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's forbearing also with us. But we should not mistake. He's not a pushover. He's not a doormat. He's king. He's judge who will return from heaven to judge the living and the dead. There will be an end to the time of grace. There will be an end to the opportunity to repent and believe and be forgiven. So let us not presume, brothers and sisters, upon the kindness of our Savior King. As verse 26 says, the blessing of Jesus comes to us. It comes to us by way of turning every one of you from your wickedness. If we don't turn from our sin, if we don't embrace Jesus Christ, not just with lips and words, heart and life, if we don't do that, then there is no salvation for us. This is something that you elders and deacon will need to show God's people by example. A turning to the Lord with heart, soul, and mind in everything. And in your offices and my, mine as well, we'll have to help the flock. We'll have to help newcomers to the flock to turn away from sin and to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. As deacon, Brother Prinzen, you may show to others you have that privilege, you and your fellow deacons. You show the, the great mercy of Jesus. As you have received mercy, you show mercy. And as elders, brothers, elders, you and the other elders, you may gently lead the flock to follow after the Good Shepherd, to do so in faith and obedience. You lead them gently. You lead them persistently. You lead them with care and direction, calling back the straying sheep, knowing how gentle and persistent the Lord Jesus is with you and with me. Brothers and sisters, you and I, like this, this healed man, we cannot live like we did before. He, he could not the next day go back and sit at the temple gate and start begging. No. We cannot go through life ignoring Jesus and living as spiritual beggars with no future. Instead, let us every day repent of our sins. And every day we'll find reason to leap for joy knowing our sins are washed away. Every day, exercise your trust. 
place your faith in Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection do wash away your sins and mine. And we will find ourselves walking and leaping and praising God, devoting ourselves to the Bible's teaching, devoting ourselves to the fellowship of believers, breaking bread with one another, and devoting ourselves to prayer. Let your shame, let it be washed away forever. And let times of refreshing flood over your life through the spirit of Pentecost. Amen. Mm -hmm.